are listening to the sermon audio from Renaissance Church. We pray this message equips you to be formed into the image of Christ as you grow in your love of God, and it fuels you to love your neighbor as yourself. We are convinced that while this sermon audio is beneficial, this should only be supplemental and not replace local church involvement, the pastor God has put over your life, or your commitment to gather in person with other believers to make more disciples for the fame of Jesus. Peace be with you. We're continuing our series uh, in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus, and we're going to find ourselves um, still at the beginning, chapter 1, and we're going to be trudging through verses 11 through 14. If you do not have a Bible that you call your own, we have free Bibles for you right in front of you. Um, and I just simply ask you, keep, keep this word open throughout the entirety of my preaching so that you can make sure that what I'm saying from this pulpit is what Paul and God's word is saying from this book. Amen? I mean, would you hear this word from the Lord through his servant, Paul? The Apostle Paul continues, In him, he's referring to Jesus there, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. To the praise of his glory. My friends, this is the word of the Lord. Would you help me praise him again through prayer right now? Father, we praise you for your glory. That you are a God who has fashioned us by your word. You've formed us in our mother's wombs. And it was your good purpose to save us by this word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. Father in heaven, as we think about this word, may we remain people of your word. The word who has become flesh dwelt among us. Jesus. May he get all the glory and honor and praise as I preach this morning. By your grace, would you transform us? By your spirit, would you renew us? Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. It's in Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You could find your seats. Now, around the age of 15 or 16 years old, I started my, my first job in northeastern Ohio. And it was at that point, uh, around this time of the year, I had my first lesson in taxes. Yo, I struck it rich, I thought. I got 75 bucks back from the government. It was amazing. 
And so that next year, I, I determined that I was going to work twice as hard as I did the year before. Because if I work twice as hard, twice as many hours, I'll get twice as much money back from the federal government. Now, I started living that whole year as if I had 150 bucks already in my pocket. It was already spent. I had this brand new stomp box picked out for my guitar, brand new strings, and some brand new music from Columbia House Music, where you can get like 50 CDs for a penny. Y'all remember that? But here's the reality. That check came back, and it was a lousy 20 bucks. I was living as if I had money ready to spend. I was so confident that this 150 bucks was coming because I worked twice as hard as everyone else. I was living as if I already had it. Have you ever been there before? Where you find yourself living as if you already had something. Living as if something was as available to you as is the air that we breathe. Well, the Apostle Paul tells the Ephesians, that is a reality we can enter into. That you can live as if the future is already yours because by God's grace, the future is secure in Christ Jesus. And so what does it look like for us as his people to live as if the future is already ours? See, Paul wants to show us, and first the Ephesians, that our destiny, our future, our destiny is promised because we are sealed with the Spirit's divine presence. Our destiny is promised because we are sealed with the Spirit's divine presence. And he's going to show us this through two different windows in time. He's going to show us, first point, an inheritance that is of old. But also, he's going to show us an inheritance that is forever. An inheritance that, of, that is of old, an inheritance that is forever. You all ready to dive in? First point, an inheritance that is of old. Read along with me in verses 11 and, and 12. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance... Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, if you take a look and keep your noses and your Bibles right there, you can see in these first three verses, they are linked by the words in him. We see in him, verse 11. In him, verse 13. But notice. Verse 11 says, in him we, and verse 13 says, in him you. What's going on here? Paul is distinguishing between two different periods of two different people groups. Right? He qualifies this first in him, we, in verse 12, with those who were the first to hope in Christ. We who were the first to hope in Christ. Now, 
I don't know if many of you all know this, but Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title. It's the non-Jewish way, the Greek way of saying Messiah, the anointed one. Christ Jesus. Messiah Jesus. And so who was the first to hope in the Messiah? Paul says, me and we who are Jews by heritage, Jews by birth. He's saying from Genesis 3 onward, the apostle Paul tells the Jews, we who were the first to hope in a Messiah. Where do we see a Messiah in Genesis 3? It's the seed of the woman who's going to come and crush the seed of the enemy, the serpent, the devil. And he's saying that, Paul, that God has predestined you. He's predestined you according to this purpose. Remember, predestination is not a doctrine for arguments. Predestination is a doctrine of assurance. It assures us and these Jews that before they ever made a decision about God, God has already made a decision about them before the foundations of the world were laid. That our chosen destiny is not based off of our sinful or shame-filled past, but our chosen destiny is all based on his grace-filled pleasure that he would choose us to write us into a story because he has chose us in Jesus' story, the perfect one who had the sinless life. Paul is saying here that God's plan never writes a check that his power, his sovereignty, and his grace cannot cash. His plan is certain. I mean, I can just imagine the Apostle Paul sitting under house arrest in Rome. As he's meditating on these words, he works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. I was a murderer. He works all things. I was a persecutor of the church. He works all things. And I can imagine him thinking about the history of Israel. More specifically, the failures of Israel. That if it was based on their plan to make a decision about God, they would have changed their, time, their mind about God a thousand times over and again. I mean, just think about it. Adam and Eve failed in the garden. But God remained faithful to his plan. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob failed God in similar ways because you know what they did? They handed over their wives to other men in order to protect themselves. But God still remained faithful to his plan. Then Jacob's sons, out of jealousy and spite of Joseph and that coat, sold their brother into slavery. They failed. But God used their unfaithfulness for his faithful plan to save the nations from starvation. 
And if you keep running down the line of the Israelites, the story of Scripture, you will not find heroes in the Scripture. You'll find failures in the Scripture because the only hero is God himself who remains faithful to his plan when everyone else fails him. Moses, King David, Solomon, the entire nation constantly failed, but God worked all of these things out according to the purpose of his will, Paul says. And these brothers that sold Joseph into slavery, and their father died, and they feared what their brother might do to them. They went and asked for forgiveness. And you want to know Joseph's response? What was his response to them? He says, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done The saving of many lives. God uses all things, Paul says, to work together for the counsel of his will. We, like Joseph's brothers, we, like all of Israel, we fail many times over and again, don't we? But you know what God does? He uses all things even your failures, even your unfaithfulness, to work together for the good of those he loves, he chooses, and he predestines, Romans 8.28. And what is that good he works out? It's his will, right? To the purpose of his will, not my will. And what's his will? 1 Thessalonians 4. Our sanctification. And what does Paul do at the end of this phrase? He says, to the praise of God's glorious grace. He ends up praising God. Why is he sitting here praising God? It's because praising God is part of God's will. Look what we read. Look what we read later. He says, rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It's God's will that you would praise him, not just in good circumstances, but in what kind of circumstances? All. All circumstances. Why was this good news for those when he says we who are the first to hope in Christ? Imagine being Paul. Imagine being an Israelite. The father sending his son Jesus had zero to do with Israel's faithfulness, but had everything to do with God's faithfulness. He works all things according to the purpose of his will. See, why do Jews get this inheritance in him? We've obtained an inheritance, Paul writes. It's not because they chose God as their inheritance. It's because God chose them as his inheritance. Look what we read in Malachi 3.17. They will be mine, says the Lord of armies, my own possession on the day I'm preparing. I'll have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his son who serves him. You see, even though they changed their minds about God, God never changed his mind about them in Christ Jesus. 
It's precisely because of their failures, because of their unfaithfulness, that Christ came to these people. And in John 1, it says that Christ came to a people who were his own, but rejected Jesus as their own. And it was through their sin, it was through crucifying their Savior, their Messiah, their Christ, that led to God saving them. Peter, in Acts 2, when he's preaching the first Christian sermon ever recorded, he gets after how both God's plan and our sin to crucify Christ. Look what he says to all of these Jews from the surrounding region. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you, he's talking to Jews, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See what Peter's saying? Your unfaithfulness, the evil that you did to Jesus, didn't ruin God's plan for you. In fact, the evil that you did to Jesus was intended for your good, for the saving of many lives. You know what happened at that point? They were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And they went away rejoicing. Does that sound familiar? They went away rejoicing. Even though we were unfaithful, God was faithful. Even though we crucified the Christ, the Christ was crucified for us in our place. And Paul's saying, praise Christ. Praise God for this glorious grace which with he has blessed us in the beloved because we've been redeemed by the blood that he spilt because of us. Do you know that your failures and your unfaithfulness cannot ruin God's purpose and plan for your life? God, in fact, uses all things. All things. To make you look more like Jesus. Does this then give us permission to sin more? To fail more? No, Paul says, by no means. It gives you permission to rejoice more. To rejoice more. Paul is telling these Jewish Christians that this is our inheritance of old. But we can't remember this is a primarily a group of Gentile Christians he's writing to. It's not just an inheritance that's of old. It's second point, an inheritance that lasts forever. Paul has already shown them the plan of God's electing. He says, to the praise of this glory, in verses 3 through 5. He's also shown them the, the plan of the Son's redeeming, to the praise of his glory, he says. And now he's showing them the plan of the Spirit's sealing, 
It's a Trinitarian praise of Trinitarian praise, like we've said before. And he says, in him, you also, verse 13, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with this promise, Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise, there he goes again, to the praise of his glory. He says, you also... You also, it's not just Jewish Christians who gets this inheritance. It's not just Jewish Christians who first hope in Christ. But you also, verse 13, you get this inheritance as well. And what is this inheritance that is both of old that will also last forever? Well, Jeremiah 10, 14 says this inheritance is the Lord himself. Mark 10, 16 says that it is eternal life. Hebrews 10 tells us that it is the gospel of our salvation. That's our inheritance. And Revelation 21 that we looked at a couple weeks ago shows us this inheritance is the brand new heaven and earth that we will receive when the king comes back for us. Do you remember this verse from Revelation 21.7? That the one who conquers will do what? Can you say that word? inherit. This is the inheritance, these things. And I will be his God and he will be my son. Now do me, do me a favor for a second. Can you imagine what it would be like to receive an inheritance? Has anyone in here ever received an inheritance from somebody before? Small number of people. We're not really all that familiar with inheritance these days. But, but, but typically... What happens is when you inherit an estate, money, or land from somebody, it usually comes from a family member that dies that is then passed on to someone else according to the deceased will. We find it in their will. Now, let's keep thinking. Who does the work? of accumulating the inheritance? And who does the work of just receiving it? Who worked? It's the one who died did the work for that inheritance. It's the one who died who chose to will this to somebody who did no work for it. See, who didn't do any work to gain an inheritance? the one who receives it. Isn't this the gospel? That the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the rightful heir, the King of all things, says, I've died not just to pardon you from your sin, but also to give you all of my possession, give you the promised Holy Spirit that now dwells in you. It wasn't your will that decided this in advance. It was my will. The one who died did the work so that we who did no work can just receive the inheritance. Listen to me. God did not predestine you because he knew you would be good. God did not give you an inheritance Because he knew it in advance you might do more good than you do ill. No, God predestined you despite 
my story, your story. Do you know how refreshing and at the same time intoxicating this would be to Gentile Christians? You also, who did not come from a history of holy people, I now call you my holy people who are once on the outside, I'm bringing you on the inside in Christ. Listen to me. Your shame-filled history does not determine your future destiny. Your sin-filled history does not determine your future destiny. It's Christ's story that determines your future destiny. It's his story. It's his perfect sinless life, his sacrificial death that says both Jew and Gentiles are full co-heirs of this inheritance that they've done nothing to work for, but I've worked for in my life, death, and resurrection. Your history, church, does not determine your destiny, but his story, Jesus' story, determines your future. What good news is this? And how do we know that this is our forever inheritance? How can we be certain of this? How can we live like this is already ours right here, right now? And Paul answers that question. Verse 13. He seals you. He seals you with the promised Holy Spirit. See, this promise was not just for the Jews. The Apostle Peter, as he's preaching that sermon in Acts 2, like we talked about earlier, he recalls, recalls these words from the prophet Joel. That this promised Holy Spirit would be available not just for the nation of Israel, but all nations. Listen to what Joel says. And shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see vision. Even on the male and female servants in those days. You know who those were? Non-Jews. Even on them, I will pour out my spirit. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Everyone, both Jew and Gentile, if you call on the name of Jesus, you are sealed with his promised Holy Spirit, which is now ours until we acquire possession of the full inheritance of all nations when Christ returns for us. And this is not according to our will. This is according to the will of him who chose us. Can you imagine being a Gentile Christian? I mean, I hope so. That's what most of you are unless you have some Jewish heritage. But could you imagine being a Gentile Christian in Ephesus hearing this news? Wondering, do we really have the same promise that the Jews do? Yes. It's for everyone of all tribes who call on the name of the Lord. Wondering, does God treat me like he treats his chosen people? And the answer is yes. 
because God did choose you. Wondering, does God really love me as much as he loves those people around me? And the answer is yes. It's not because you are good. It's because you're his. Adopted children of God. You know what this is? This is complete assurance for incomplete and imperfect disciples like me and like you. It's complete assurance for incomplete people. Richard Koken, he writes this. This wonderful assurance of salvation for anyone who believes the gospel is the irreversible, I love that word, it's the irreversible election of the Father, the irreversible redemption of the Son, and the irreversible indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Our glorious future cannot be more secure. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit dwelling in you is proof that you are God's possession. I don't know if you noticed the word that the Apostle Paul used there. He says you're sealed with this promised Holy Spirit. That word seal is the same word that was used for kings when they would imprint their symbol on a lump of clay to prove that this letter was from them and that letter was theirs. It's a seal declaring that this is mine. These are my words. What has God imprinted on those who believe in Christ? God's very promised presence. The Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity. It's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession. And just wouldn't it have been so easy, so easy as a brand new Christian in Ephesus with this brand new understanding that there aren't many gods all over the place, but there's just one God who exists in Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, wondering if they still had something to prove to this God, to prove that they were worthy of his love. Worthy of his acceptance when the proof of God's grace was already in them, his spirit. I wonder if that's some of us here today. Where you're still wondering that you have to prove something to God. See, sadly, I think many of us think of Christ's death as a kind of a down payment on this new home and the new heavens and new earth that was paid for at the cross, but now it's our job to keep up the payments to God. I wonder if that's you, where you think you still have something to be paid for. When your life was bought at a cost, the cost of Jesus' life. I wonder if right now you're still trying to prove yourself to God. That you're worthy of having around for all eternity. Where are you trying, still trying to prove 
and secure your future? Where are you still trying to work for your future? Where are you still living as if your future isn't certain in Christ? Now you might be saying, now, Pastor Rob, is it wrong for us wanting to grow in holiness? Is it wrong for us wanting to grow in Christ-likeness? And I would just say it depends. What are you wanting when you want to be holier? What are you wanting when you want to be more Christ-like? If you're wanting more approval from God, yes, then it's wrong for you to want to be holier. If you're still working for his approval, working for his pleasure in you, then yes, it's wrong. Why is it wrong? Because the work has already been done. The work is finished at the cross. All the proof that you need of your salvation is not in what you do. It's what's been done for you in Christ. And he says, I've sealed you with the proof of my grace, which is my promised presence. Daniel Montgomery and Timothy Paul Jones writes this in their book called Proof. Grace isn't opposed to working out our salvation. Grace is opposed to working for our salvation. Where are you still trying to work for your salvation? Where are you still trying to work that if you don't keep up the work, you will lose your salvation, you will lose God's love, and you will lose the spirit that indwells in you? Where are you still living like that? Because if you're living like that, you are forgetting the forever and eternal grace that resides within you. A pastor from Philadelphia writes this. No, you cannot lose your salvation because you cannot lose what was not gained by you. It's not kept by you and is in its entirety a work of another. Where in your life right now are you living as if your future isn't secure? And you're trying to still work for that security. Here's the good news. When God calls you his, you are his. When God looks at you, when he looks at us in this room, while the world might see a group of people who who don't seem to belong together, our Father in heaven says, they all belong to me. They are all mine because of the blood of Jesus. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John, he says, I will give to those who believe in me and believe in my life, I will give to them eternal life. And I will not lose one of them, and not one of them will be snatched out of my hand. Listen, believers don't simply enter eternal life when they die. No, believers have eternal life entering them when they believe in Christ. It's the Holy Spirit, the eternal Holy Spirit, who now is the down payment, the guarantee of your future inheritance until you acquire possession of it. You see, if the 
If our salvation wasn't eternal and we can lose it, it wouldn't be eternal. If our salvation was something we can lose, the Spirit was something we can lose, then he wouldn't be eternal. But he is. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. And as a result of this, nothing, not one thing can uproot his choice to uproot his grace from your life. To uproot his inheritance for your future and to uproot his spirit that now dwells in you. Not your sin can uproot his grace. Not your shame, not your fears, not even that darkness that gnaws inside of you that nobody else knows about but you. Not your future, nothing in your past, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate you from the love of God that's been sealed by his spirit inside of you. Because God has proved that you are his once and for all when he walked out of that tomb. Not just when he died on that cross for you, but when he walked out of that tomb to give you new life and nothing Not a thing can change his predetermined choice to save you. You might have changed your mind about God several times back and forth this past week. Maybe even several times during this sermon. But if you're in Christ, God has never changed his mind about you. This last week, or even this morning, your emotions might have wavered back and forth between anger, disappointment, love, joy, fear, disappointment in God. But if you are in Christ, God's emotions never change towards you. He's fully pleased with you. He fully loves you. And it's not that just he's pleased with us from a distance. No, he set his presence on us. He's in you right now, crying out for you when you cannot cry on your own. Abba, Father, you are my Father. This is what the Spirit does for us. And why do we have the Spirit at work in us? It's not just that Jesus has put the down payment on our salvation at the cross, and now we have to keep up these payments. No, the gospel says that Jesus has paid our debt in full that we were not able to pay, so he paid it on our half. And so when we look at that empty tomb, it says, paid in full, sins forgiven, shame left in the tomb, fears buried in the grave. It's because of Jesus Christ when he let go of his spirit from the cross. He gave up his spirit. So he can give you his spirit. He gave up his life so you can have eternal life. And this promised Holy Spirit is not like a down payment on a home. It's not something we get to keep up. It's something that is kept up for us on our behalf. Why? Because God is the one who has made the guarantee when he sealed us with his presence. And he is the one who's going to bring the full inheritance when Christ returns. Oh, what would it look like if we were a people who lived in light of the certainty of our promised destiny because we have the divine presence living inside of us? I'll tell you what it would look like. We'd stop living our lives 
working for God. But instead, we would start living our lives worshiping God. Do you hear the difference? We'd stop living our lives for God the Father. Proving to him that he did a good job making a decision about us. No, we'd live lives worshiping the Father who chose us before we were ever able to choose him. We'd live lives not working for our redemption, but worshiping that the Son has redeemed us. Amen? And we'd live lives not working for security of our future as if we can add a little bit more glue to make our salvation stick. No, we'd live lives worshiping the Spirit who has sealed our salvation. It's secure. Oh, would we be a church who'd be like Paul, that when he recounts the Father's electing, the Son's redeeming, and the Spirit's sealing, we'd stop living lives working for God, but instead worshiping God. And in the coming months, we're going to be able to find out what that looks like as we keep trekking through the book of Ephesians. Because I'm sure right now you do not want me preaching a whole nother sermon on the rest of the book of Ephesians. So that's something we get to look forward to. Let's stop working. Let's start worshiping. Because our future promised destiny is secured and sealed in the Spirit's divine presence in our lives. Amen?